We're going to take uh, verses 35 through 38. And it says this. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I mean, this is, I, this is a perfect passage to start the year on. Um, resolutions, I don't know if you do them. I don't because I just hate failing, and that's all I've ever done all my life. And so uh, I, I will just be like placing another failure on me inevitably. Um, and uh, so I, I, I don't know if you do that, um, but, but, but I, would, I, would, I, would, I would suggest... Uh, rather than making a resolution that you might break in a week or two or whatever, or maybe you'll pull it off, uh, committing this uh, to your prayer list, this prayer that Jesus has or tells us to have here to your prayer list for the new year. I know we all have a prayer list. I know that we're all interceding when we've got uh, an, on, an ongoing list that maybe we run through. Uh, this should go towards the top on that list, this prayer right here that we see today. Um, for years, and I know you guys have, have heard me talk about this a lot, um, for years I thought the primary mission of the Christian was to go to church, sing songs, sit through long, boring sermons like this, and try to be a better person every day. Uh, I thought that that was maybe like the, the, the mission uh, of the Christian. But um, the more that I read my Bible... The more that I read my Bible uh, for almost 30 years now, by the grace of God, I've come to the conclusion that none of those things are the primary mission of the Christian. And what you're going to hear here today, you hear a lot from us. You're just going to hear it again because this is what Jesus is dealing with. Let's jump right into it. Verse 35 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, and he's teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing every disease and um, every affliction. And so the first thing that we notice is that Jesus is fully out of the closet now, like he actually has been for a little while. But he's like, there, there was a while when he would perform a miracle um, or he would do something major with a private audience. And then the last thing he would say is like, don't tell anybody. <laughs> okay, um, so there, there, was, there was a time when he was to step out into the public light with these things and a time when he wasn't. Uh, this is time. He's out. He's no longer Israel's best secret at this point. Um, he, is, he, is, he is loud and, and proud uh, in a good way with who he is and what he has come to do. So he's openly showing, declaring, proving his kingship. That's what he's doing by doing what he's doing. And um, the first thing that we, that we notice here is that he's not just doing it in the big places, right? Like he, he's not just going to uh, the cool places or the popular places. What Jesus is doing, he's doing everywhere. And, and I find this interesting, especially for us, because I'm a... Um, Kind of a church planter is the way that I'm wired and I'm involved in church planting networks. I actually get to help coach um, and be involved with church planters all over the world uh, via uh, FaceTime every month 
I get to meet with guys, whether they be from Germany or Africa, with their lights off because they can't, uh, they can't let anyone see that, they've, uh, that, they're, that they're on a call like this. Um, and I get, I get the, the, the blessing of, of being around these people. But in America, what's weird with church planting is it seems like everybody wants to go and plant a church in the cool places. Like no one wants to go to Christmas Valley and say, I'm going to plant a gospel church here. No one wants to go to Paisley and say, like, I'm going to put a gospel church here. Everyone wants to go to Bend, where there's already 60 gospel churches, and say, I'm going to put a gospel church here. And the question I love to ask people, because every year a new church comes into Bend, and it's like, and it's like so what, what, what made you feel led to come to Bend? And they'd be like, well, we just, we just really like the place. We like the climate. We like the outdoors. We like the school district. And it's like, what are we, like, what are we doing? Like, I, I love that Jesus didn't do that. When he came to proclaim the good news and to set up a beachhead for the kingdom of God, the gospel to be proclaimed, he went everywhere. He went to the big places, he went to the small places, and he went everywhere in between. And I think that little piece right there says something to you and I uh, as well. Um, It says that he went to all the cities and the villages, which is the first point of application uh, to us. Because as we get more divided as a people, more um, politically categorized and polarized, more sectioned off, more hateful, more opposed to the other side, and more confident and defined and dug in to our own social political columns, we well begin to avoid certain people and prefer others. This is going on, if we're all being honest, we're seeing it even in ourselves, the tendency of this going on. We will begin to avoid certain places, and we will begin to prefer others. Um, we talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago, the pastors met with a dude, and um, he used to live in Bend, but he, he moved outside of Bend to just a, a town right outside of Bend. And he was talking about um, how he loved uh, that he didn't have to go any bend anymore and that he, didn't, he couldn't even remember the last time that he'd been to bend uh, because he hates it um, so much, right? Um, and, and what he's talking about is like the social political climate of bend when he says that. Um, the problem was that this man is a Christian that said that. Um, his thinking is not. That thinking is not Christian. Um, I, can't, I can't imagine Jesus ever saying, like, I'm not going to Capernaum because there's a bunch of libtards over there. You know what I mean? Like, I can't, I can't picture, like, like, Jesus, like, ever thinking that way or saying something like that. Or, like, I'm not going to Caesarea because they want to take our guns away, you know? Or, or like, I, I'm, not go, I'm not stepping a foot into Emmaus because they vote pro, pro-choice over there. Like, like, I cannot imagine Jesus ever thinking or saying such things, right? For, for, for us to think that these people are flawed in their worldview to a point to where um, we should take them off the rescue list is the exact opposite of why Jesus came and who he came to. It's the exact opposite. That everyone's worldview was flawed is why Jesus came to them. That's the whole reason why he made contact and why he initiated relationship with people rather than avoid it. It's the opposite of how you and I tend to think these days as Christians. 
the trend for a long time, we've talked about this before, has, has been to just move now, right? If, you, if, 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 if your state is, is politically leaning one way that you don't like, we're just going to up and move to another state. It's crazy. And some of these moves are even big, halfway across the continent or all the way across. Like, they're not cheap. This is a big deal and, and, a, and, a, and a big reason to make that kind, kind of a, a, a move. But we, have, as Christians, have become extremely selective and preferential about, this is the bottom line, who we go to and where we go. That's the point. And all I have to say is, praise God that Jesus was not. Praise God that Jesus was not preferential with who he lived around, who he went to, and where he went. Because he went everywhere. He went everywhere, big, small, and in between, right? One of the greatest examples of this equal opportunity ministry mindset that we find in Christ is found in the Gospel of John chapter 4. Many of you know this story. Kirk's already nodding his head. He knows. It's the woman at the well. Right? They had been down in Judea, which is south, which is lower Israel at the time of Christ, doing business. And then they had to go back up to Galilee. But there was this thing in between Judea and Galilee. Do you know what it was? Samaria. Samaria. And no one went to, some, went to Samaria. Uh, the, the, the Jews looked at the Samaritans like a disease. They, they were the outcasts. They were the bad people that were not like them. So when you made that journey, you went ahead and you took the time to go over and then up and then back. You went around Samaria, not through Samaria, because of how much the Jews hated the Samaritans. And what does Jesus do in chapter 4? They get to the border and he's like, no, we're not cutting around, we're actually going to keep going. And, and then the disciples are like, what do you mean? Like, are, are you thinking properly? Like, what do you mean we're going through? And he's like, we're going through. And he cuts through Samaria and he has this appointment with somebody, some unlikely person at a well. And it's a Samaritan woman. And right here, when you just take that information, there's a bunch of problems with this. And his disciples knew it. And so they're like, we're out. Like, you go ahead and like, you know, we're, we're going to go get some food. He, Jesus sends them away to get food. And he has this appointment with this woman, this Samaritan woman at this well, right? And she ends up receiving life as a result of Jesus not going around Samaria, but going into Samaria to this well, right? The, the bottom line of the story is that Jesus went to a place he wasn't supposed to go, to a person he wasn't supposed to go to, to give her something she did not deserve. This is the heart of Christ. This is what the gospel does. And I think that you and I, those of us who have been saved and, and who have experienced that love from Christ, um, know, know that, that this is everything. That this is, this is where and how the gospel goes. It goes everywhere. And Jesus showed us this over and over again. So, so when Jesus campaigned the good news of the kingdom, he campaigned it to all people everywhere. All cities, villages, first thing we see there. Not only did he go to all cities and villages, but it, it seems from what, we, what little information we have in the rest of this verse, to all the demographics even, all the layers of those cities and villages. So we're talking like subcultures in those places that he went because it says he taught in the synagogues and he healed every disease and affliction. 
Um, that may look like I'm pulling too much out of there, but I, I really don't, don't think I'm assuming too much. Um, because what that means is that he was active in the private sectors, he was active in the religious sectors, and he was active in the public sectors of every single place that he went into. Which means that he made himself accessible to everybody. He was accessible to all. He taught in the synagogues, meant that he was spending time with the religious people, reasoning, revealing himself to them through the scriptures. So he's opening the scriptures to them that they thought they knew, and he's helping them to actually know what it is that they're saying. It also says he's healing every disease and affliction, meaning that he's also outside the walls of the synagogue in the streets. With the normal people, with the common people, so that they can bring their sick to him and have them heal. He was accessible to everybody. He was going to everybody. Now, I, I want to keep this short because this is a total side note, but this verse has been used wrong a lot of times, uh, in, in my opinion, uh, uh, as far as Jesus healing every disease. Uh, I, I do not uh, believe that that means uh, that the church's mission is that it should as well, because he did that. Um, can he still heal? Can he still heal through us? Absolutely. But that's not what we go around dispensing as Christianity, is that if you, if you, if you, you, know, if you get broken or sideways or sick, like Jesus is going to fix you, come to Jesus. Like, that's not the message. That's not the mission of the church. Oftentimes, as we see in our Bibles, uh, God chooses not to heal his people. Because that's where the greatest eternal work is done in us, is through what we call a theology of suffering, of us being challenged and longing for him and being drawn into him and close to him rather than fixed every every time something goes wrong, which means that we don't need him then. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's what when things in my life are good, God is most, my relationship with him is most dull. That's just the way it is. It's not a coincidence. That's just the way it works. And when I have the most... Uh, um, turmoil and, and layers of suffering that are going on, that's when my relationship with him is best. I am closest. I am pushed into him and dependent on him. And so um, we don't believe that because Jesus went around and healed at this time every disease and affliction that it means the church should be doing that as well. Uh, this is not a wink and a nod, in my opinion, to the word faith movement or Dominion Theology, or the NAR, which is the New Apostolic Reformation. These are big movements that are going on in the Christian world right now, and they're false. And the reason they're false is because the emphasis of what they're doing, what they think is most important, and what they are basically showing the world Christianity is, it is not. It is wrong. It is not true. Um, but they will look at verses like this and say, he, he did it, so we should be too. You need to read the rest of your Bibles and then put it all together. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the way it works. So, but the reason Jesus healed everything at that time was to authenticate, to authenticate the words that he was speaking and the life that he was living, his testimony, his gospel, his divine origin as to being the king of the kingdom. That is why he walked around and he did the stuff that he did. It wasn't so that he looked cool or so that we could go like, I want to do that too. He did it to authenticate that he really was who he said he was. 
right? That he was really God's only begotten, that he was the anointed, the Messiah that God had sent that was ushering in a kingdom. That's, that's the reason why he displayed his power over things, whether it be nature like we've seen in the last few chapters or it be healing every disease and affliction. When he does that, he's saying, I have power over this. I, I have authority over this thing. It's nothing for me. I own it. That's, that's, it, that's the statement he was making. Okay? So, um, signs, miracles, impossibilities done by Jesus all equal authentication of that which he claimed about himself. It's, it, it was there to cause men to go, oh, oh, this is real. This man, this God man is, is real. This message is real. That's what it was there to do, is to point to uh, the authentication of what Jesus was bringing. And, and why? Why was the mission of Jesus so strong? Why was it so widespread? Why was it so non-discriminatory and unstoppable? Why was he going everywhere to everybody in populated places and small places? Well, because of what we read in verse 36. That's why. 36, when he saw the crowds, he had, what's the word? Compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I don't want to state the obvious because it might hurt all of us, me first, a little bit, but I'm going to do it. The reason you and I are so selective and so unfruitful and quite frankly so lazy about where we go and where we don't go with the gospel or who we go to and who we don't invest the gospel in is directly due to our lack of compassion. It's due to our lack of compassion. Our evangelistic weakness is not that we're not versed enough in scriptures. I know we all feel that way. I know we all feel like we have, um, like we're insufficient uh, in our in our knowledge to be able to go and have conversations about God with people. I, I get that. I get how it's in, intimidating, but that's not our greatest evangelistic uh, weakness. It's also not that we don't have enough scientific knowledge to defend like creationism over naturalism. Like that's not the problem. The problem is that you and I can look at certain people without our hearts breaking. That's the problem. I know it's true for me. I know it's true for me. And I feel like I have this general love most of the time, but like, like it's true. I can look at certain people sometimes and my heart does not break for their wicked condition. My heart does not break for the fact that they're on the wrong side of God. And what they're going to experience one day is not okay. Not only do our hearts not break many times when we look at certain folks, it actually grows harder sometimes and colder sometimes and more callous toward them because their sin disgusts us. So they disgust us. This is our fundamental evangelistic problem right here. Their thinking disgusts us, so we withhold gospel. Their political party disgusts us, or the way that they vote disgusts us, so we withhold love. Their worldview disgusts us, so we withhold. Their lifestyle disgusts us. Their confidence in their worldview and actions and lifestyle disgusts us, so they disgust us. We withhold gospel. Because they disgust us, our conclusion is that they aren't worthy of redemption, God, His gospel, forgiveness, mercy, eternal life, all the things that we freely enjoy ourselves. This is where it gets weird and very hypocritical. 
And I know it's not a matter of like intellect. So what we do is we respond with no response. It's passivity, right? We pass over imparting the gospel to and toward them. And all I have to say is, once again, how blessed are you and I that God did not do that to us. That he did not pass over us. Because I, I don't know how deep you look into your mirror, um, but almost all of my depression, which is a lot, I'm a, I'm a depressed, I know I'm a Christian, I'm not supposed to say that, I'm just supposed to be full of joy all the time and singing songs. I'm a depressed man a lot. I am a heavy man a lot. And the reason, the greatest reason why I'm, in, I'm so depressed and so heavy so much is because of what I see in me. I don't know how God can love it. I don't understand it, and so I question it. I, I wrestle with doubt all the time. Not, not because he breaks his promises, but because I'm so broken. I, I don't know how he can look at me and not be so disgusted that he never offered me a thing. But it's not what he did. He did the opposite. He looked and he saw the entirety of my disgust and had compassion on me. This is, the crazy, this is the crazy love that the God of the universe has. This is the crazy love that's displayed in the gospel of Christ that he brought down to us, people who did not deserve it. it, it it's just it's insane to me that, that he can deal with me every day. I know you've heard it. I love the saying. I, I give him a, I've given him a million reasons not to love me, and he's not paying attention to any of them. He's not listening to any of them because his compassion is so vast and so deep. And so it's perfect. It's so perfect that I can't, I can't break it. And neither can you. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is a freeing thing for, for you and I to know, to accept once more today. God's love is already perfect for you. No matter what you're going to do when you leave church, no matter what thought you're going to have tomorrow towards somebody else. He already fully, completely loves you. And Christ is the one who has secured that love for you. Amazing stuff. Um, and, and so that's why uh, I, I feel so overwhelmed when I consider this and then feel so overwhelmed when I consider how disgusted I get when I look at a disgusting person. <laughs> because I am that person. I am that person. And I, and I believe that if we keep this mindset, if we, this is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and to each other every single day. That you never graduate from the gospel, that, that Jesus loves us is the deep end of the theological swimming pool, not, not the shallow end. That is the deep end. That dumb little song we used to sing in Sunday school when we were four years old, that is the deepest theology that you and I can ever grab. That Jesus loves us, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When we sit on this and we let our, our hearts and our heads marinate on the gospel every day, we will be more apt to reflect what Jesus did, which is compassion towards others who don't deserve it, just like us. Um, I think there's a couple reasons that, that maybe we lack this, because my next question is like, why? Like, how can I be, how can I not always have the compassion 
that I should have towards people. I'm a believer. I'm a child of God. Like he's, he's living in me. He's dwelling in me. He's, his spirit's testifying with my spirit of these things, right? And, and so how, can, how is it that I'm, that I'm not um, accurately, um, continuously representing um, this characteristic of compassion towards others. And I, I think there's two reasons. One is because someone may not be born again. Um, that, that could be a, a reason why we don't have compassion on, on people. Uh, if, if we look at the lost, uh, even the lost lost, which that's not a real category, but you and I do that. <laughs> there's like people who kind of sin, but they're pretty good. And then these people that, who don't deserve anything, um, but if we, if we can look at any of them and have no compassion, but only disdain and distaste and disgust, it very well may be because we've never experienced the compassion of Christ for and on ourselves, right? This is why the gospel matters so much. Like it could be a foreign concept to us, this crazy love that God has dispensed um, because we've never experienced it for ourselves. The idea of people being spiritually blind and needing sight to be given to them may be lost on us if we've never experienced it for ourselves, right? So, so if we think knowing Jesus is simply a moral issue, um, it's possible that we've never experienced the gospel because it isn't a moral issue. Um, it's, a, it's a spiritual one. Uh, it's, it's one that has to do with depravity. If we boil the whole thing down to just being an intellectual exercise, it may be because we've never experienced the gospel because it's not an intellectual exercise. If we know that we were blind and now we see, then we're on to something <laughs> because that's what we're talking about here. And this is how it is for everybody. If you, if you know that you have been born again, born from above, supernaturally, born of the only begotten of the Father, and that that's the difference maker, that's the difference maker with you, then you will be able to conceive of a compassion for the lost. Not a perfect one, but a present one. Not a perfect one, but a present one. There will be a present inward truth and desire to love our enemies, Matthew 5, love our enemies, which is, which is what God did first. Right? He showed us how it's done. He's not saying go do this and, and not knowing what he's talking about. Right? He did it first. There will be a present inward truth and desire to love our enemies because we owe all that we have to the beauty of God loving us first. The second reason that we might fall into not having compassion like we should, and this is, I think, more probably applicable to all of us. I know it is to me. is because we're being influenced more by the outside sources and narratives, and influences of the world than we are by Jesus. We listen more to voices that don't speak truth and life, but think they do, or they sound right, or they gratify the flesh, and you and I just sit around and don't discern that it's gratifying the flesh and not the spirit. We don't ask why we're enjoying it. We just know that we're enjoying it. So we keep going back to those sources Listen to, um, let me read this real quick. This was one of the first passages I ever memorized as a young Christian. And um, obviously I don't have it memorized anymore because <laughs> I'm trying to find it. Uh, listen to Colossians 2. Listen, listen to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I love the King James version of it because it starts with beware. That's the first word. And uh, every time I see beware, I think of a fence uh, with a sign on it because there's a big dog 
it's like something dangerous on the other side of that fence that's going to rip you apart. So it's like, don't even think about it, right? Like, like, yeah, like Diane's dog. She's back there laughing. Like, don't go over, don't go over this fence. It's not going to go well. And in, in the King James, like, that's how this passage starts. It's like, beware. Like, like, sit up, take notice. Pay attention to what's on the other side of this, of this fence. And it talks about not being taken by the elemental, uh, elemental spirits of the world and the, and the philosophies of, of, of the world. The thinking that goes on outside of this, basically, right, is what we need to be um, aware of and careful of. Um, my dad had this sign, uh, because, because we are, that's my point. Like, we are so influenced, we're so influenced by that which we're around. I remember when I was a youth pastor for years, the thing I hated the most was that I had um, 45 minutes of teaching once a week with these, these kids, okay? So they would go out for the other, what is that, couple hundred hours of the week. And I felt like when they came in and I got them for 45 minutes that I had to try to undo everything that was done during those hundreds of hours the rest of the week. And you couldn't, couldn't do it. You couldn't do it because the, the influence is so strong in that which we are around the most. My dad had this sign when I was a young punk, and um, he had an office that was kind of by the back door, so I, I would have to, he was working from home, so I would have to go by um, his office to leave. And it'd be like a Friday night, and I'd go by, and I'd be like, all right, Dad, I'm going out. He knew, what, he knew what, that I was up to no good, and by that time that I was already, already messing with stuff I shouldn't be messing with and, and partying pretty hard. And I'd go in and be like, later... I'll, I'll, I'll see you. I'll see you tomorrow. And um, he would point to the sign that he had right by the door that said, show me who you run with. I'll show you who you are. And I hated that sign. Uh, I hated it. Even, even the, I knew it was true. Like I, I knew that it was true. It was like this stupid little proverb. And my dad was so proud to just like read the sign on the way out, you know, and it was like, whatever. And, and, and it was just so true. I, I was doing the same things, talking the same way, thinking the same way, living the same way as those who I was spending most of my time with. It's just, it's just the way that, 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 it, that it works. We are and will be influenced by that which we spend the most time with, whether it be people or media or music or news sources. This is the big one. News sources, people, just shut it off once in a while. Shut it off. Jesus is still going to be on the throne. I don't care what kind of big new development comes onto the face of the earth. God's on the throne. He's not going to relinquish it. He ain't going to go anywhere. Okay? I'm not saying walk around with your eyes shut. I'm I'm saying don't give that all of your attention. Because of the spirit in which that stuff is communicated and done through the media sources, through the news sources, is a divisive one, not a godly one. It is not benefiting you. It's stealing from you. So be careful. When you go to get information, that's one thing. But you will be influenced, if, you're, if you spend too much time there, by the attitude that's also there. And that attitude is one of divisiveness. And we just need to watch ourselves. We need to be careful. Everything in this world preaches something. Everything in this world, I don't care if it's a song or a movie, I don't care what it is, everything preaches a sermon in this world at some level. And if we're not careful, if we're not conscious, if we're not awake, we will soak these things in and buy them. We will, even as Christians, we will buy them. 
So, and, and it's not going to be the big obvious things, right? Like, I, I'm probably never going to come around to thinking like, um, uh, yeah, I think same-sex same marriage is rad. I, I'm probably never going to do that, okay? But, but, but the smaller things, the subtle things, right? Like, I, I don't know if you do this, but fa- Facebook is so dumb with this. A lot of times people will get in when them and their, their, their spouse have a fight. I don't know if you've seen this. And they'll make a comment so that everybody else knows that their spouse screwed them again publicly. And then you'll start reading the thread, and what does that thread say? Get rid of them. What are you doing? You should leave. You deserve to be happy. You've already forgiven them ten times. It's over. You need to walk away. Right? And it sounds right. It sounds like that person should deserve to walk away and should deserve to be happier and all this stuff, but it's completely wrong. It's, those subtleties are completely wrong. No, biblically, we deserve to be pulverized and tormented in outer darkness for who we are. You know what I mean? Like, like we don't deserve things like that. And because, because that's biblically true, we are to forgive people 70 times 7 because that is how massive Jesus' forgiveness is towards us, right? That's right thinking, not wrong thinking. It's so easy for us to get off track and buy the bull when we make buddies with the bad guy. So our primary mind diet must consist of that which speaks truth and godliness into our lives. Otherwise, disgust, not compassion, will be our disposition. Are you guys with me still? Sorry, it took me forever to get through that. I believe that our, um, our political divide that is going on and that many of us get caught up in so, so easily has caused more of this has caused more of this type of bad, unchristian thinking than anything else today in the church. So just be careful. Be careful what you're spending your time around. Be careful of how you're receiving something that seems right. Why does it seem right? Is it biblical? Is it something Jesus would say? Is it something the Bible has taught us? You know, We need to be careful about this stuff. Filter. We're not just told that Jesus had compassion on these guys, but we're also told Why? And the reason why is because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless by, by whom? Was it Rome? Was it the Jewish leaders? Was it the Jewish religious leaders? Was it Satan? Was it themselves? Was it sin? I, I'm going to go ahead and just say yeah. Like, like probably all the above. Like all the above. I, the spiritual component's always the biggest one. It's always the biggest need. But there was a lot going on at this time. You know? All of it could be true, but what's most certainly true concerning this statement is that they had a lack. They had a lack, is what's being said. Their own inability to lead themselves, whether it was physically or spiritually, it doesn't matter. They lacked the ability to lead themselves, and they weren't being led by anybody else. That's what he's saying. So we could just say that they were being misled on multiple levels. And it broke the heart of Jesus to see. So the bottom line, these guys weren't being led well. And Jesus, he wants them to be led right. So that's why he had compassion on them. That's why he came. And that's why you and I should have compassion on those around us. And that's why we should come to them. People are still being misled all over the place. They need to know that there is a shepherd that is able to lead them right. You and I get to carry that to them. 37 and 38, kind of move through this pretty quickly, um, if I can find it. He said to the disciples, here's, this, here's the, the famous statement, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. couple things I want us to notice here. Number one, we are not waiting for harvest time to come around. Harvest of Jesus, the one that he's talking about, already exists. It's already here. With most harvests, there's a little window, a small window, a short definite period of time that you work for and you prep for and you wait for and you hope to arrive so that you can then hopefully have a good harvest, so that you can hopefully capitalize on the increase of all of your prep work. This one is not like that. This harvest is already here. It's an already harvest. It's a year-round harvest. It's a multi-season harvest. Do you guys remember the statement Jesus made in John chapter 6? All that the Father gives to me, what's the next word? Will. Will come to me. What does that mean when he makes that statement? He means that it is certain, it is, in fact, it is definite, <laughs> it is certain that the people that God has already prepped will be harvested. They will know him, they will come to him. He doesn't say all that the Father gives me will come if they decide to or if we evangelize good enough and have good enough answers for their hard questions, right? None of that stuff. It's not dependent on you and I, right? The harvest, the increase of God's harvest is dependent on Him. So what we have here is the reality that you and I get to be, we're the means that God has chosen to collect that which he's harvesting, which he's bringing forth, right? That's really what's going on here. Jesus is saying the harvest is here, which means all the time, every day, right now, it's ready to go. All the heavy lifting of prepping the field and and doing all the stuff that needs to be done so that a harvest will happen has been done. All the heavy lifting's been done. All the hard work's been done. By who? The one who owns the field, right? Because this is true, the laborers aren't needed to prep the field, like I've already said, that the harvest will be good. They're needed to reap the field because it's already good. That's what's being said here. The harvest is already good. It's not going to be a bad one. It's going to be a good one. So the laborers wanted aren't in prep mode. They're in pick mode. They're not in a mode of the harvest depending on their prep work. They're in a mode of gleaning that which has already been prepped. So we get to be the means of the harvest. Number two, Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to go out and grab their buddies, right? Get as many people as you can. He tells them to ask the master of the field. And this is kind of weird. But he he tells them to ask the master of the field to hire more workers. That's Jesus' suggestion to them, right? Now, um, I mean, it would sound maybe like, like, don't go try to do this your way. Um, It needs to be approved and done his way. Um, I've owned a business for 25 years, chimney business. Um, I was the only guy um, for a lot of years that was out in the field and, and doing the deal. Um, now I just own it. I assume all the responsibility, but I'm not out in the field anymore. Um, I got, I got, we have three employees that are out in the field every single day. Okay. Um, when they have a brilliant idea, like a change to be made, I don't want them to just run off and do it. Um, I want those kids to come to me and to tell me about what it is, and to get approval (laughs) from me, and allow me to be the one that helps them adjust it and make it happen. 
That's part of my job and my responsibility. I don't want them getting a bright idea and then implementing it, right? Like I want to be let in on that uh, because I'm the one who's ultimately responsible for it. (laughs) So I I want to be a part of that decision. I I know the field. I know the field better than they know the field because I've been in it longer, right? How much more God who who owns the field, (laughs) who made the field. He knows the field. He knows what needs to be done. He knows how it needs to be done better than you or, or I do. So this is just a simple like thing, like we need to go up the ladder on this deal. That's, that's what Jesus is basically saying. But he chooses another word here, if you notice. He places another word in here when asking the Lord of the harvest for more workers. And that word is earnestly in the ESV. So he, does, he doesn't just say pray that the Lord of the harvest would put some workers in there. He says pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would put workers in there. Earnestly means sincerely, sincerely, with intense conviction even, with intense, like this is something that we really want, like this is something that we really believe needs to happen, so, so earnestly is, is, is seriously, intensely, so what this means, and this is kind of cool, is that we get to bug the boss when it comes to something like this, this is what it's, this is what it's saying, we get to bug the boss, he's okay with being bugged, with a request like this. We can go to him over and over and over again, intensely and seriously. In fact, he wants us to. He wants us to. But he wants us to come believing it, wanting it, desiring it. So we have permission to, to pester him over this. right? He, wel- he welcomes it. So if I'm going to summarize basically what we have here in the, in the last two verses, um, the majority... Um, of this analogy that Jesus has here, it would, it would sound like this. God has a family business. God has a family business. And the family business is to grow God's family. It's the reaping of souls. And the business is good. In fact, it's so good that there are more laborers that are needed. But because God is the boss, he's the CEO of the family business, he makes the business decisions. It's his right So everything gets run by him and through him before it happens. So if there is a request, a recommendation, a suggestion, it has to go to the man at the top of the ladder because it is that man who has the power to make it come about. This is the summary of this. He has the wise authority and insight to grow the business effectively and successfully. Now this is not just a a summary of Jesus' analogy here. This is a summary of why the church exists on earth. This is why you're here. You guys hear us say this all the time, and I'm going to say it again. We are, the church does not exist on earth to go to church. It doesn't exist on earth to go to a Bible study. It doesn't exist on earth to sing worship songs to God. Every one of those things will be better throughout eternity. What will not exist in eternity is the gospel going forward to another lost person. The church exists on earth for us to be a part of the family business of reaping souls out of our Father's field. This is why I love the prayer, the heart of Kirk today. Why that was on your heart, I don't know. And Craig, towards the end, like we're all thinking the same thing. Like, and, and we're coming into this new year, and that really doesn't matter uh, to God. But what a, what a great time for us to look in a new, fresh way 
right? To be more earnest to our Father about workers going into the field. About seeing a great, great, um, just baskets full of people that are coming right and left to know the glories and the grace of God's loving kindness. To come from darkness to light. I mean, this is, this is what it's all about. Um, some of you, maybe, I know we play this game too. I played it for years. Maybe willingly, even happily, believe the lie that because God hasn't given you the gift of evangelism, that you're exempt from evangelism. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have done that. I was that way for years. Like, oh, like, I'm not evangelist, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and leave this uncomfortable stuff to the evangelist. After all, that's why God has evangelists, right? Um, the, no, wrong. <laughs> wrong. Um, I can promise you that Michael Jordan would have won zero of the games and zero of the championships without four other dudes on the court with him. I guarantee it. He wouldn't have won one. He, he was more gifted. He was more apt. He was more natural of a player in his abilities and his skill. But I can guarantee that no other player on that team said to themselves, since Michael's so good, we're not even going to get out on the court and play tonight. We're just going to let him do it, right? No, no. They played basketball too. And they were necessary for every victory and every championship that the Chicago Bulls ever had. The whole team was. Even though Michael was extremely gifted at what he did. It's the same way biblically, people. You've got people that are more gifted at things, like, like I'm a pastor, but you guys are all called in your own ways to be pastoral towards each other. You guys all shepherd and pastor each other in ways. We're all to do that. Evangelism's the same way. There may be some people where it's just more natural for them to talk to somebody or the way that they approach them or the way that they interact with them. But we are all called to be a part of that. It's, it's called reaping our father's field. And we all are to pick up baskets and go in. That's what it's all about. What we can use the people that are more gifted for is to look to see how it's done. We can learn from them. I have a buddy, Doug, that, um, was kind of like a spiritual father to me, brought me through the word of God and lots of Bible studies and lots of teaching. And the dude was super helpful. This dude is the purest evangelist I've ever met in my life. It is so natural to him. It's almost like a magnet where like people actually just go to him. And, and the way that he interacts and the amount of people that like meet the Lord from this dude, like in the spur of a moment, it's insane. But being able to walk with him and watch him do that over the years has given me confidence, has given me boldness. It's helped me to go out and be a better evangelist. And that's how we help each other, right? We look to the more gifted and be like, tell me how it's done. Like, show, show me how it's, how it's done. And evangelism is the same thing. If you're a part of the family, then you're a part of the family business. It's bottom line. But remember that as you go, be encouraged in this. God himself is the great harvester, not you. Again, we get to be a part of what it is that God is doing. And for whatever reason, he's chosen to make us the means in which he accomplishes that which he is doing. And that's just a privilege and an honor and a blessing. And, and what that means is that um, he knows what he's doing, even if you don't. Even if you don't. I get being scared. I, I get how, how nerve-wracking it is going out and doing it. But, but he knows what he's doing, even when you're inadequate to do it, even when you're incapable of doing it or unable to do it, you're not, but he is. 
Um, the knowledge of this courage, this gives us courage, gives us boldness, gives us incentive to move ahead into the field and walk in it. So today's the first day of the year. I said this already. Instead of adding some kind of resolution to your, your week that you're going to break next week, um, add this prayer to your prayer list instead. That the Lord of the harvest would send more workers into his field. I want to see this in Lapine. I want to see this in this community, in the neighborhoods around here. I hope you do too. So let's pray earnestly for God to do this. Lord, thank you for saving people like us. Um, thank you also that, um, that other people getting saved doesn't depend on me. <laughs> like, like, thank you. Um, I don't think anyone would be saved if it did. Uh, I thank you that it all hinges and depends on you, but I also thank you that you, like a loving father, um, then allow us to come in and be a part of it, like have front row seats to watching it happen um, and to watching people, um, watching lights go on in people's heads and hearts. And so, God, I pray that we would truly desire with hearts of compassion to see all people everywhere saved and that we would live in a way that reflects that compassion. Make us more like you and thank you for all um, that you bled for in us. In Jesus' name, amen.